Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Adriana Lewis Murray, who is professor of economics at UCLA. The research examines the relationships between socioeconomic status and health, with a particular focus on education and income. So, Adriana, I have a number of your papers here, um, both working papers and published ones. Uh, but I want to start with. intergenerational correlations in longevity which i find it really really interesting <laughs> so you say here while there is substantial research on the intergenerational persistence of economic outcomes such as income and wealth much less is known about intergenerational persistence in health we examine the correlation longevity and um an overall measure of health you say across generations using unique data set containing information about more than 8 million families obtained from the family search fa- uh, family search tree so um you know my first thought on this was i haven't read the paper in detail <laughs> so my my first thought was yeah of course you know there is we all know health outcomes are based on genes well a good part of it is based on genes uh and there is obviously environmental effects uh which we begin to call epigenetics in the, in the in the clinical community um but why is it so surprising to you that there is correlations between intergenerational well the question is not whether there are correlations but how big they are yeah and i think that the thing that's most surprising to me in this in this research is that the correlations in longevity that we find are actually much lower than the correlations in education and our income across mm. generations. So, when I started this research, my expectation was similar to yours that oh my god, of course it's all about genes and so like if your parents lived a long time, that's a good indication you're going to live a long time and vice versa. Um and what we're finding 
which we then kind of retrospectively discovered is not so new, as it, it turns out, is that in fact, uh, longevity is not that highly correlated across generations, mm. much less correlated than your socioeconomic status. Mm. So, I mean, how you want to frame that uh, is, is, I guess, up to, uh, up to you, right? And, and it's interesting to think about what it means, but, but basically, if you look at education or things, let, let's take education, there's more than a 50% correlation from one generation to the next. Like that correlation is very high. Educated parents tend to have, more educated parents tend to have kids who are also more educated than their peers. Hmm. Uh, and so that number is like 0.5 or 0.6 in the US. Uh, but for longevity between a father and son, that number is 0.1. So. Oh, wow. Really, much much smaller. So you can frame it in a positive way and say that there is a lot of mobility in terms of health. So if your parents died very young, that is by no means a sentence for you that you will also die very young. Um, it also conversely means that if your parents lived very long, that does not guarantee that you yourself will live very long. And so that's the flip side of, of mobility, of course, you know, it can, you know, you can go up or you, or you can go down. Um, and so, uh, so I think that's interesting is like, we find that there is a correlation, but it's actually much, it's, it's small and it's much smaller than the correlation in other, in other um, outcomes. And, um, and this is despite the fact that, of course, there are genetic factors that are passed on from from, from fathers to sons, it just turns out that genetics is a much smaller part of what determines how mm. long you live than, than people think. That's so interesting. So you say income and education are more highly correlated across generations. Yes. Uh, but longevity is not necessarily, I mean, it's, co it's positively correlated, but it's not that highly correlated. So that has a lot of implications, uh, even from a policy perspective, right? So um, is it that, well, I mean, I'm just speculating here. I don't know anything about, about this uh, area. So uh, when kids grow up in a, in a wealthy family, let's say, high income, high education, maybe they pick up bad habits that reduces <laughs> <laughs> their lifespan in some ways. Um, I think it goes both ways. I'm just, you know, just throwing it out there for you to react. Yeah. Well, I think that one thing that I, so I guess I want to make a couple of comments. One is that I was kind of surprised by this, but then I was also interested in like, so when, when we say in the paper that people don't study intergenerational correlations in health as much, um, that mostly pertains to kind of economists. Economists have studied a lot of persistence in socioeconomic outcomes like wealth and income and education and much, much less in, in, in terms of health. But it turns out that back in the 19th century when people first discovered genetics, they kind of went crazy 
in trying to trace the genes that made people like smart or sick and you know they try to find genes for everything and and one of the and one of the very earliest studies on the role of genes was actually looking at intergenerational correlations in longevity because people thought for sure this is where we're going to see the genes just just like you anticipated and just like i anticipated back in the 19th century people looked at this and they constructed these data sets of um, aristocratic families that you could trace, you know, because we have information on them from history books uh, on when they were born and when they died. And so you can know how long they lived and how long their children lived. And so these are kind of small data sets of highly selected families. But lo and behold, they actually also find very similar numbers to the ones that we find Despite everything that I just said, it was kind of very surprising. So there's like a first paper that computes this number. It goes back to 1898 and it finds just about the same number we find. Even though we, I think in the latest version of the paper, which is in Posted Online, we have probably more like 16 million families instead of like three or 5,000, which is what they had back then. But we still find kind of pretty low numbers. So kind of retrospectively, I discovered that, in fact, this number has been pretty low for a long time. People in um, who have done this kind of genealogical research have computed this number in other populations and, the, and they found it to be low. So in the paper, we put together estimates from outside of economics from a lot of what we call convenience samples, like just kind of famous people, rich people, um, but they all kind of come down with like low numbers, which is very surprising and they're very similar to what we have. And so then we, we do have a section on the paper where we try to think about like, well, why is that? Um, and uh, one thing that I realized doing this project is that in fact, when you try to predict the age of death of people. So how old you are like to my father, my mother died when she was 70. So let's say we try to predict whether you're gonna be 70 or 80 or 90 using the things that we observe about people. It turns out that those predictions are very poor. So um, we know that income, education, lots of things matter for your health and whatever it is. And when you try to use those to predict longevity, like your age of death, they're highly predictive, very statistically significant. And so for sure, if you have money, you're more educated, you're probably going to live longer. But it turns out that the amount of variation that we can explain is small. In other words, there's just a lot. If you take two people with the same education and income and born in the same place and whatever, they're still huge in the time, the age at which they die. And we don't know what those are. So like kind of more technically speaking, we, we say in the paper that there's like a, a lot of stochastic variation in the age of death. Things that there are just as of right now with the things that we're able to observe with people, we cannot really explain or understand like exactly why, why it is. And, and there are lots of things that happen in the data. So you mentioned like, well, it could be that you're from a rich family, but you can pick up bad habits. 
but you know you could also move to a place that has high air pollution you could um marry somebody that's not very nice to you right. <laughs> you know that could be there could be lots of things and conversely you know you may come from a poor family or less educated family but you could still benefit from a lot of technological innovations that maybe your your your, your parents were not not able to benefit from you could move to a better place without even knowing it right so you could um you could be lucky so and some of it is also like um um there's a lot of randomness although this doesn't explain it all but to some extent part of the reason why these correlations are low is that there are also a lot of random reasons why people die right so like they go to wars, they have accidents, sometimes they kill themselves, sometimes they're killed by other people. But even sometimes some things are also very random, like you have a heart attack and maybe that's not random, but let's say another person also has a heart attack and we have research that shows that, well, you know, maybe the ambulance gets you to a good hospital and then they save you and maybe the ambulance that day was busy and they don't get you there in time and then they don't save you. And that could be a difference of like a few years for people, you know. My yeah, father, yeah. Children, he had his first heart attack at age 38. Um, he lived to be age 68. So that's a huge difference. But if they hadn't actually intervened at the right moment, he probably would have died right then and there. So there's a lot of idiosyncrasies right there yeah. that, that make a difference. Like my father's father lived much longer than my father but also with a lot of help of medical care and there's like a lot of idiosyncrasies in in how that gets performed and you know so so maybe um what that's one of the things that i ended up reflecting about at the end of this project was that we're not very good at predicting longevity and there's a lot of idiosyncratic risk we don't know where it comes from and that's part of the reason that it's not so correlated across families even though families try very hard <laughs> to guarantee right. their kids will do better than, than they do. Um, yeah, I mean, I see two things there, uh, Adrian. I don't know much about this. Uh, one is, you know, I'm a big believer in initial, initial conditions. So if you're running a race and if you start a few feet ahead, you have a much higher chance of finishing first. Uh, we had a great president. He believes he's the greatest. He said, I was given just a few million dollars. Look what I have accomplished. You know? uh, if anybody's given a few million dollars when they started off, most of them will accomplish what he has accomplished. So that's not something, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an experiment we cannot run, right? So it is this idea that what you have done is a function of your capabilities really have to be quest has to be questioned, right? I mean, the initial conditions you're given. I mean, I won't be here if I weren't given good initial conditions. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in India. I I, I believe Adrian. I, I don't know if this for sure. You you grew up in Colombia. That's right. Um, and I mean, we are both here because we were probably given good initial conditions as well. So, mm -hmm. it's. Um, it is very difficult to do a longitudinal analysis on an individual. <laughs> you know, it depends very much on where that individual started. Well, and it's kind of interesting you mentioned that 
people have studied the intergenerational correlation in birth weights. And you could think of that as an initial condition, right? How your parent or father or mother started, like how healthy they were when they were born, and how does that predict how healthy you are when you were born? And interestingly enough, that is actually, in fact, higher than the correlation in longevity, mm. right? And so uh, there are these initial conditions, and they are, in fact, transmitted. And I think kind of what we're learning from or we're kind of saying in this discussion is that parents do transmit a lot of things to their kids, including their initial condition, their incomes and their socioeconomic status. But when it comes to how long you live, life throws a lot of stuff at you. <laughs> it's a lot more uncertain, a lot more uncertain. Yeah. And therefore, there's only so much that the parents can do to guarantee those outcomes when it comes to your age of death. That's kind of what we're, that's kind of one, one way of summarizing kind of what I'm saying. Right. So there is, you know, clearly epigenetics involved there, you know. So I would be a different person if I grew up. I mean, I came here 30 years ago. Uh, I would be a different person if I grew up in India. You know, I, I left when I was 21 or something like that. Um, so your environment, as you mentioned in the paper, has an equal and significant effect on on who you are, right? I mean, it depends very much on, you know, where you live, how you interact, what you eat. Mm -hmm. It has a lot to do with it as well. Uh, and so it's very difficult to tease this thing out, right, in, in factors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult, but, but um, again, what, what we see is that there tends to be a lot of persistence, and maybe that's not surprising, in some things, right? So people tend to eat the same food that their parents ate, right? But, but you know, people also migrate, and when they do, they tend to converge in terms of the practices to the practices and of the places that where they live. Mm. So they move away a lot of times from their origins, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of work that I, I haven't done, but there's a lot of work that kind of shows that that migrants converge towards natives in terms of their behaviors and ultimately in terms of their health as well, for better or for worse, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, it turns out sometimes when migrants come, they're very healthy and then their kids end up being less healthy because they adopt American diets and American lifestyles. And some for, for, for some people, that's a deterioration in their habits for mm -hmm. some communities. So there, there's like a... There is a there is what your parents give you, and and there's a lot of and and what the economics research has shown is that that the things that parents have control over, like education, are in fact very persistent. So the parents yeah. try very very hard to right. give those things to the kids, and then but then when you look at things like wages, 
or you look at things like health. You know, there are so many things between what your parents give you and that ultimate outcome that could happen. Hmm. You know, things like wealth are more correlated than things like wages. Again, for the same reason, because I can take my estate and I can like give it to you. And then you have to, you know, you have to blow it away or something, you know, but you're probably going to, you're going to be probably a wealthy person if your parents gives you a very wealthy inheritance, right? Wages is kind of different. I can send you to school and you can go to college and that probably puts you in a good position in terms of earnings, but there's still huge amounts of dispersion on any given year or whatever, depending on the career you choose and depending on like so many other factors. And so... There's going to be a correlation between parents and kids, but it's not as large as the correlation in education. And the same thing then happens kind of with health at the other end. As yeah. I said, all of this kind of sounds normal, but when I started, I was where you were, thinking like, oh, this is going to be huge, and isn't this why yeah. is interesting? Is it going to be surprising if we find that the correlation is one? And so in some sense, to me, it's very surprising that the correlation is, is, is low, but, but I guess once you think about it, maybe it's easy to explain it. I don't know. Everything seems easy in hindsight. You're like, oh, well, of course it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's difficult to get this data, but I wonder, I mean, I'm just thinking, um, I haven't thought through this, uh, Adriana. So um, if you look at data from the developing countries, like, you know, large country like India, for example, I wonder if you will find a difference in this. Um, here, the social structures are, you know, much more articulated. Um, they're much more structured. And I wondered if, if you find a difference in the data. Well, so it's hard to generalize, but here's what I'm going to say. Um, if you look at something like education, there definitely is a lot of variation across the world in terms of how persistent this is across generations. That number for the U.S., like 0.5, the U.S. is on the middle towards kind of high yeah. level. Other countries have much, much less persistence in education. Um, now, this persistence in, in longevity, which we're talking about, is much less well studied because the data requirements are much larger yeah and the studies that do exist are similar to the ones that i mentioned for the 19th century which are these unusual populations that are of aristocrats or very specific kind of cases like that this said in the paper we pulled together all the estimates that we could find and some of them pertain to other countries and other centuries, and they are all on the low end. Like no. all the numbers that we are able to find in the literature are below 0.2. Whereas a very common number for education between 0.3 and 0.6 or something like that. So, so two points, I am sure that this differs across countries and we don't have enough data. What we are most struck by when we compare our numbers with other studies in other countries or other places is that all these numbers are in the low end. Now, of course, 
now you could turn it around and say, oh, but like if somebody found, you found 0.1 and somebody found 0.15, that's a huge difference. That's a 50% difference in the two countries or the two countries. And, and that's true. So that's a little bit on the eye of the beholder. How much difference do you want to call it? On an absolute scale, it isn't as big of a difference as what happens when you go from like the U.S. to Norway, because that number for education going to the U.S. to Norway is like going from 0.2 to 0.5. So that's like a 30 percentage point difference, which whereas the, the variation in these numbers for longevity is much smaller in terms of percentage points. But the baseline is also much smaller. So, you know, some in some studies, it was like a five percentage points and the other one 15 we find around 10 so i mean that's still variation and it's different yeah to my given where i started this research to my mind it was like oh my god they're all so low right but that doesn't mean that there isn't a difference um and that there isn't a meaningful difference and that we could kind of learn from uh, that difference but something else that we found that was also kind of surprising but kind of consistent with everything that I'm saying is that when we looked at this number over time, so we looked at different cohorts and so we looked at cohorts born like I'd say 1880 and compare that with a cohort born in let's say 1920. So that's 40 years gap in like there were tremendous changes in between those in those 40 years and changes very particular to health as well, you know, like basically a lot of infectious disease was eradicated in the meantime and there were just tremendous changes. Um, we don't find that much change in the intergenerational correlation in longevity. Yeah. In other words, you know, it is what it is. It's low. People whose parents live long tend to live longer, but that advantage is small and that doesn't appear to have changed that much hmm. across cohorts. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's counterintuitive, but it is true. Um, education and maybe healthcare are things that educated, wealthy parents can provide to their kids, but that doesn't mean <laughs> you are actually transferring a lifespan advantage right that's what you're finding well you know i think that something i should mention here as well is that we're measuring correlations yeah and typically these correlations are done we, we've done it in different ways in levels or in ranks but but basically what this correlation really asks is a is a specific question it kind of says if your father was longer lived than average are you going to be longer year than average okay okay and so there's two notions of mobility that some are some sort of a binary binary effect right some sort of a correlation between binary well but what i what i what i'm trying to get at is just that let me put it differently there's a, there's a distinction sometimes people make between absolute and relative mobility yeah. And absolute mobility would ask a different question, which is, are you, so 
one question could be, are you more likely to live longer than your dad? That's absolute mobility. Yeah. Relative mobility is, um, if your father lived long, are you also likely to live long yourself? And the right. questions seem the same, but they're not really the same because it's kind of relative to an average. And so longer, longer than your cohort, basically. Yes. Yeah. And so like the correlation gets at this relative thing, right? And so we haven't computed. I am positive. I haven't computed it, but I am positive that absolute mobility is large. We know that life expectancy has increased. It increased by about 30 years in the 20th century. Yeah. And so on average, people live longer than their parents today. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so if we ask the question, has the probability that I live longer than my parents changed? Yes, it has. And it has gone up a lot. And so that absolute mobility in terms of longevity has increased. Yeah. Right now, the relative mobility question is is now different, which is if your father was one of the oldest aged people in their generation, are you also more likely to be a longer lived person in your generation? But that doesn't have a scale to it, that question. Right. And so now it's kind of like different, like now we're saying, OK, well, you know, maybe your kids are going to be to live to be 500 years old. So they're all going to longer all of that us. But if you live the short life, is your kid still going to be among the short lived people in that cohort? Right. That's that's the second. Mobility that's question. Yeah. And so, like, we are looking at that relative mobility, which is the common measure that people have. So Pachetti, who's looked at income mobility has computed these two numbers and they give you very different answers for income okay so in for longevity what we're finding is that relative mobility is low and hasn't changed that much and absolute mobility is probably increased so that's that's a sort of macro effect so right, right that's because longevity has increased a lot Chetty, if you look at income, you can look at the work by Ras Chetty, who's like done both absolute and relative mobilities. And that, there where you find is that relative mobility in terms of income is higher, like, like between 30 and 0.3 and 0.4. And it hasn't changed very much as far as he can. It's just access to healthcare, you think? No, I don't know, but he's just looking at income. So like income, relative income mobility is, or correlations, the correlations in income are higher than the correlations in longevity. And they're about like 0.3 oh, yeah. or 0.4, okay. okay? And those haven't changed very much. So if right. your father uh, was a high earning, relatively high earning person, you're more likely to be a, a relatively high earning person yourself. But if you look at absolute mobility, then what he finds, so absolute mobility now asks the question, how likely you are to make more money than your dad? Hmm. And what he finds is that that number is actually falling in the US. That it's most falling. people okay, yeah. make less than their parents made. Right. So what he finds is that for the cohorts born around 1940, most of those people 
ended up making more money than their parents. But over time, fewer and fewer people. So that by the time you get for the cohorts born like in 1980, very few of them will make more money than their parents did. Mm. So like for for longevity, we're, we're kind of finding very different things. Like we're, most people are going to live longer than their parents. Whereas he is finding that most people are making less money than their parents. So in some sense, our findings for health are a little bit more optimistic or uplifting than the findings for income, because at, at least in terms of longevity and health, there is more, we're finding more mobility, yeah. more chances for people to escape their initial conditions. Yeah. So this is not part of your research, but I just want to ask you this question. So um, income is one thing, but happiness and utility is another. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's any measure on that. You know, how, how are things changing on that dimension, you think? Um, well, that's a great question. Um, so I'm not an expert on this research on, on happiness. There, there are kind of two approaches that economists have taken that I'm aware of anyway. Um, to, to thinking about this question and kind of trying to measure it. And so one set of researchers has tried to directly measure happiness, either by asking people how happy they are, how satisfied they are, or, or even by trying to construct some measure of happiness by having like repeated measurements of people's moods or trying to, for instance, get people to write diaries and then evaluate their experiences. So basically going to people and getting them to say something about how happy they are right now, how happy they were five minutes ago, how happy they are this week, how happy they are about life in general, how happy they are about their marriage, you know, asking a bunch of questions about how they feel about different things and then using that to kind of look at the distribution of happiness and how it's changed. Who's happy, who's not unhappy, and how does that change with age, gender, and over time? And then, you know, there are people who, there are some limitations to to this approach, and there's like a huge literature trying to think about, is this, what does this measure and stuff? So there's, there's that approach. There's another approach, which is to say, well, we know the things that make people happy, you know, they need income, they need health, they need children, they need marriages, whatever. And we can try to, uh, they need freedom, and you can try to, under some assumptions, kind of combine all of those metrics. Not ask people, just take a stance and say, you know, we all know that it sucks to be in jail, we all know that nobody likes to be beaten <laughs> up, Nobody likes to be uh, in places where there's crime, et cetera, et cetera. And so we take a stance on what are the good things in life, what are the bad things in life, and how much they matter. And then we kind of combine them into an index. And there's like a lot of ways of doing that. But like the World Bank has kind of well-being indexes. And economists have also produced their own indexes. 
And so there what you do is like you collect data on all these things like education, income, crime, etc. And you kind of put them in a formula and it gives you these this this number. Um, so I don't know of any research on intergenerational correlations in yeah. happiness or well-being um, that uses self, these reported measures of happiness. Yeah. But there is at least one paper that I know that try to combine intergenerational correlations in health and intergenerational correlations in income into a single measure. Um, and one thing that's kind of interesting that we also find in our paper, and I should mention it, is that these two things are pretty independent. And so when you compute these well-being, intergenerational correlation in well-being, it looks different when you do the combination, when you include a lot of things in it, than when you just look at one thing. So it turns out that, so this is also very surprising. It turns out that if you look at where are the places where the intergenerational correlations in education are high, and where are the places where it's low. So you you could just, we, you, we mentioned that it's high in the U.S. and low in Norway, but within the U.S. we could also like look at different states and we could say where that is. And then you can do the same exercise with longevity. You can ask the same question, like where are the places where the parents transmit longevity the most to the kids? And then you can just say, are those places the same, right? Are there just some places where like the parents are able to give everything to their kids? education, longevity, whatever, and some places where they're not, right? Right. And it turns out that's not true. Not true at all. Meaning, there are some places where parents transmit education at a very high rate, and those are not the same places where longevity is transmitted at a high rate. Hmm. So then, when you rank places, now, now let's say you combine longevity and education, the places that are best to live at are not going to be the ones that you would have picked by either looking at longevity or by looking at education, because those two things are kind of somewhat unrelated in the data. And so you, depending on how you combine them, you'd get like a different, like a different number. Mm -hmm. But the correlation in this well-being index that combines both income and measures of health is, is larger than the correlation in just health. And so, in that paper, you know, but there's only one study that I know. So honestly, I think we probably need more more studies that would ask this question whether whether well-being or happiness is transmitted across generations or not. I, I will mention one last thing, which is that I don't know, but I think I came across a study. There might be some studies that look at the transmission of mental health. And there is definitely, again, we go back to genetics there, but the, obviously there are some mental health conditions that are transmitted um, across generations and things like depression and anxiety. But 
I interpreted your question as being broader than that, as being like happiness and satisfaction. And so I actually don't know any study that really nails that question, which is a really interesting, important question, because I think the fact that the World Bank and economists and all these people are trying to con construct these indexes comes back to this question, this observation that you made, that obviously we care about happiness and well-being. Mm -hmm more than we care about any of the specific yeah, yeah. it's into that. Yeah, I mean, the behavioral health axis uh, is quite interesting. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh, so I grew up in, you know, uh, in, in South India and I grew up in a place that has the highest per capita suicide rates in the world, uh, rivaling Japan. <laughs> Um, high levels of depression, high levels of alcoholism. Um, it's systemic to the area. And from a policy perspective, there is implication. So, you know, in terms of generational transfer of education, health, longevity, let's say, um, it is a function of the environment that you live in, right? I mean, the, the factors that apply to you is broader than what your family gives you, I think. Right. Well, yes. That's why we should we find a low correlation in longevity. <laughs> okay. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, your family, you know, they can choose the school you go to and they can choose where you live and all of that. But there is definitely a lot that's uh not not under under their under their control that's right For so better, education what? might be education might be under the parents control so that's yeah. why we find high correlation right and healthcare may be less so and then you go into lifespan and longevity much less so a lot of uncertainty around that so that's what we're finding in the data i would touch on another topic um the incentive effects of cash transfers to the poor. Mm -hmm. You say all distributive and social insurance programs trade off the potential benefits of transfers with the disincentives these programs generate. You say we investigate this trade off using newly collected lifetime data of 16,000 women who applied to the mother's pension program, the first cash transfer program in the US. I'm not, not at all familiar with this, Eriada. Um, so, the mother's pension program. So this is something that you can apply for if you are a single mother, is that right? Well, let me tell you a little bit about this. Yeah. Basically, um, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was almost no government intervention, no government programs to provide help for the poor, the blind, the elderly to help with when you were unemployed or when you needed help with your health. And so all these programs that we're used to today that people refer to as like the safety net or the welfare share or social insurance programs, like lots of these programs, they didn't exist at all. And somewhere between 1900 and 1940 or 1950, um, states and eventually the federal government kind of adopted a bunch of these programs, some of which are pure redistribution programs to 
to take money from taxes and give it to poor or blind and needy people, or some of which are social insurance programs like unemployment insurance. And so the first part of the 20th century is a period that I've studied a lot and that I'm very interested in because it's the period during which we have the rise of the welfare state. And so in this paper, what we did is that we went back to the first welfare program. So welfare in the US has evolved uh, a lot. And so it started with this mother's pension program. It started in 1911 when Illinois passed the first program to give cash to poor women with children. Uh, more specifically at the time, Unmarried, un, I mean, uh, divorced or unmarried women? Well, okay, I was going there. Yeah. Most specifically at the time, in a lot of the early states, um, this help was often targeted just as, uh, to widows. So in some programs, this was called the Widow's Pension Program. Eventually, whether it was called Mother's Pensions or Widow's Pension, eventually, uh, in most states, um they made widows eligible and then eventually they made uh women whose husbands were disabled or imprisoned eligible and then abandoned women eligible and then divorced women eligible so over time over a period of 20 years um eligibility expanded pretty much to all women with children who were kind of without a husband that was around um, that was very controversial at the time. So they started with widows. And basically what happened was that in the 19th century, the approach to orphans, so like if you your father had died um, and the mother found the, herself without being able to provide for the kid and they didn't have like family or something, then the state would put the kids into orphanages. And so there were tons of orphanages. So you've seen the movie Annie and we've read like Charles Dickens books on this and whatever. And all of these take place, not surprisingly, late 19th century because that was kind of the most common and very prevalent policy. And so there were tons of these institutions that were paid by the states and the, the kids would be taken away from their parents. So early in the 20th century, um, you know, there starts to come uh, a recognition or an understanding that these places are not very good for kids. And so like data and reports start coming out about like mortality rates are high, um, disease rates are very high. Basically, these are not good places for children. And there was a conference that the uh, Teddy Roosevelt at the time held in the early 1900s where they suddenly have this kind of big aha moment where they're like oh my god we're paying money to the orphanages to take care of kids why don't we just pay the mother instead and in yeah. fact they had this great idea like let's pay the money mother less than we're paying the orphanage we'll save money the kids will be better off everybody's gonna be it was like a win-win-win and so this idea took hold and it was very, very popular. And so within a decade, all of the states in the United States, within 20 years, they had all passed this legislation called the Mother's Pension Program. And that legislation 
eventually became, so in 1935, so in the 1930s when the Great Depression hit, all these programs which were local, they were funded at by mostly by county, sometimes by state, they ran out of money. And so nobody's getting money anymore. And so in 1935, with the Social Security Act, the federal government comes and says, if you have this program, we'll give you matching grants. And that's where the program got relabeled ADC, Aid to Dependent Children. And that eventually became labeled again AFDC in 1962, I believe. And it was Aid to Families with Dependent Children. And then in 1995, that gets labeled TANF, Temporary Aid to Needy Families. And that's the program that we have today. In, for a long time, that program, which is commonly referred to as welfare, right? But it started with a mother's pension program. It was a program to just give women with children money. And it started back then. Today, that program is very, very small. But up until 1995, it was a very large program. Today, it's really been replaced by the, by the EITC. Okay, so going back to the paper, what is it that we do? Um, basically, this was the first program that attempted to do this. And we collected data to evaluate this program over the long term. So that obviously there's been a lot of debate about these programs, whether they're good or not. The first thing that we wanted to do was to see whether this program was good for children. And like, it's really interesting, but basically even if you go back to the welfare reform debates of 1995, the conversation in the United States has always been about whether people who are on welfare are cheating welfare, whether they're teaching their children that it's okay to be on welfare, whether welfare is keeping them poor. A lot of the conversation is about the adults, but really when this program was first passed, the whole point of it was to help children who were born in poor families to grow out of poverty. So the idea was like, this is not the fault of the children. The father died. The mother never worked. And like now she can't take care of the can't provide for them. Let's help them out so that this kid can stay in school so that the kid won't get into crime and whatever it is so that they won't turn into poor adults. That was the original objective. And yeah. believe it or not, there actually has been very little research on that question. So the first paper that we wrote that's already published, we collected administrative records of that program around the United States, and we linked the records of the participants to records uh, of 1940, of World War II, and, and longevity, and we were able to track the boys. And in that first paper, we showed that, that the women who got the money their sons lived longer than the women who applied for the program, but it were eventually turned down. Their sons did not live as long. You so, that, Irina, sorry to interrupt. You see in the paper that the long run, transfers had no effect on work, marriage, or fertility behaviors. Of the mothers. Nor did they diminish or improve the economic conditions of recipients or the longevity. Right. So in the long run. so. So what's the long run here? What okay, the, uh, so right? basically now in this paper that you're looking at, we collected additional data to see 
what happened to the mothers? And are all these fears that people have about welfare, do we see those playing out back then? And over the long run, kind of, is was this good or bad for the mothers? So basically, what's the long run? We have data until the mother dies. And, and so we collected data on, did she marry? Who did she marry? Did she have more kids? How many more kids? Did she end up in a household with what kind of income? Did she, and how long did she live? You know, so you might have a hypothesis. And, and, and we also looked at where did she live? Because people think that people move or don't move in order to get monies, you know. So we kind of wanted to, to see how big this effect is. And, and, and the reason for doing this is kind of how that paper started. You, you always know that if you have a program to help somebody, it's going to have a cost. So at the end, you need to weigh the cost against the benefits. So the real question is, are there benefits? How large are they? And are there costs? How large are they? So once we had looked at the benefit, we found benefits on the kids. Now we're like, okay, let's look at the, le uh, the other side of the ledger, the mothers. What happened to them? Yeah. And so, first of all, we don't find that they, we looked at marriage. So a common concern with welfare is that people stay single or don't marry or divorce or are abandoned on purpose so that the women can get some income. And we find that there is a delay in marriage. The women who get the money delay marrying by about between one and two years. But over their lifetime, they're just as likely to marry as the women who don't get the money. And we interpret this as not necessarily being a bad thing because maybe they don't marry out of desperation. We don't know. Well, all that we know is that about 50% of the women married eventually after this program. And that's the same between those who got the money and those who didn't. We I don't. Talk, um, Andrea, I think you talk about sort of the optionality that comes with the money that allows the woman to find maybe a higher quality husband. Right. right. So we hypothesized when we first looked at this, we said to ourselves, wait a second, even if it's true that the mom delays, is that necessarily bad? You know, maybe it's better for the children and maybe she doesn't have to marry the first person that comes along because she's desperate. So we look to see who she marries. And we wanted to see if by waiting, she was able to marry an excuse like how this is going to sound, but like a better guy. Okay. Was she able to marry better? Right. Sadly, we don't find that that's the case. They delayed the remarriage, but they married about the same type of person than they would have otherwise. This I think you mentioned this in the paper too. I can't quite remember. There's two counteracting, counteracting effects there, right? So by delaying, you have a higher chance of finding a better husband. But by delaying, you're also increasing your age. Yes. So there, there is a negative counteracting effect there, right? So yes. that's the issue, yeah. Well, we, and, and we suspect that that's the reason why they ultimately don't gain so much by waiting in terms of who they marry, because we do see in the data that the rates of marriage uh, 
of remarriage plummet very rapidly with age for for these women anyway. And I think this is true in even in contemporary data, you know, as people get older. So the average woman in our data set applied for this money at age like 38, I want to say, 39. Oh, wow. Okay. You know? And so like if, you know, if you, let's say that you're a 40-year-old woman, you're waiting two more years, you know, that's that's a long time. Like say you want to have children and stuff like that's Yeah, there's a higher time. risk of having children after that as well. So there's a lot more risks. Um, no, so I was wondering, I mean, I don't know anything about this program, and I was just thinking, I was reading through the abstract of the paper, that I don't know how things are in Colombia, and you know, in, in India, you know, it's a bit like uh, women who has a job, who has an income, typically delays marriage uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and it will be very interesting to look at what the outcomes are <laughs> by that delaying decision. Was it a was it a right decision? You know, I mean, well, you know, some sort of a discounting of future cash flows. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we try to look at at the end of the day, kind of how these women fared, and we looked at we looked at three things. So we looked at like. In nine, these women applied for this program between 1911 and 1930. We observed them in 1940, so 10 to 30 years later, depending on the woman we're looking at. And we um, look to see kind of are they still living with a husband? So like that's a measure of like they have a good marriage, you know, right. <laughs> are we kind of happy? We look to see the family income that they have at that point in time. And we looked to see the third measure of overall welfare was how long they lived, you know. And so if they married a worse or a better person, if they stopped working or made all sorts of other wrong decisions and they were unhappy, then we think it should show up in some of these indicators. And we find nothing. In other words, if you were if you were hoping that this money was going to make these women happier and better off, that's not what we find. So that's maybe like negative. On the other hand, if you were convinced that welfare was really bad for women and makes them more likely to become poor and all of that, well, that's also not what we find. Kind of at the end of the day, the way we saw this is that we find that the benefit of the program mostly goes to the children. And the moms change their behavior a little bit, but not that much. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.